Hello, and welcome again to the Expanding Eyes podcast, where we have been making our way through the text of Milton's Paradise Lost for some weeks. I wanted to say quickly a possibly reassuring word to listeners about action and plot in Paradise Lost, because we have been dealing a great deal with themes and issues rather than plot actions. And I want to reassure you that there is action in Paradise Lost. Book five, at which we have arrived this week, falls into symmetrical halves. The first half is entirely a conversation in the Garden of Eden, but the second half begins the action that will culminate in the war in heaven of the rebel angels versus the good angels that takes up the entirety of the next book, book six. However, I do not want to be in too much of a hurry to get there because not only are the questions and themes and issues important, but there is a primary Miltonic theme here. In Milton's view, most of what passes for action and decisive willed events in our experience is in fact pseudo-action or even anti-action. And that is deeply true with the events of Paradise Lost. The two main actions taken are wrong actions, not genuine actions that accomplish something. The revolt of Satan and the other angels and the revolt of Adam and Eve in eating the forbidden fruit. These are actions that should never have occurred. Genuine action to Milton, and this is one of the most central themes in all of Milton's work, including Paradise Lost. Genuine action is in fact internal. It is an act of the mind, an act of the spirit. And it often takes the form of refusing the temptation to the wrong kind of action. It is a much more genuine act to refuse to do the things that look so decisive or so heroic or so powerful. And there are deep implications to this, and some of them we will explore as we move onward. The real act to Milton is a mental act. And that will lead directly to the Romantic poets, Blake most powerfully perhaps, at the turn of the 19th century, a century or so after Milton, profoundly every single one of them influenced by Milton. And in the view of someone like Blake, the genuine act is an act also internally of the imagination that recreates the world, recreates the imaginer, and makes all the difference potentially.
everything else is a kind of illusion, even if it looks far more real than what goes on in someone's inner self. But there is, to return to Paradise Lost, there is action, and it is counterpoised in Book 5 very symmetrically against the first half of the book, which is not action at all. It is lunchtime conversation in the Garden of Eden. God has sent down Raphael, the sociable spirit, as he's called in line 221, elsewhere the affable archangel, basically the extroverted archangel, who is an ideal angel to go down, temperamentally suited it appears, to go down and have a conversation in the telling line 229 of book 5, as friend with friend. Talk with Adam and Eve as friend with friend. And just glancingly here, in that moment, we get another sense of what we have lost with the fall. The fall is the coming of alienation into the world. And that alienation includes, of course, alienation from God. But much more concretely and vividly, it means alienation from God in the sense that we have lost the direct conversation the next line after the one I just quoted, line 230, God tells Raphael, converse with Adam. And I quoted you in a previous week, Eve's beautiful lyric poem recited out of love to her husband, Adam, about the greatest value of their marriage is conversation. The word means back and forth interchange. And it isn't just a Miltonic add-on sort of theme. It's a haunting phrase in the actual book of Genesis that before the fall, God himself used to walk in the garden at close of day and talk with Adam and Eve. What have we lost? We have lost the friendship of the divine and of the angels. The word angel means messenger, and Raphael is fulfilling his professional obligation of being a messenger, coming down and informing. This is what God has commanded him to do, informing Adam and Eve of the enemy they face, the background to the trial that they will soon be undergoing, the backstory, which is nice for us because we are eavesdropping and we get filled in too. And it's all done over lunch. Raphael descends, and just as we had seen the garden through the eyes of Satan originally, now we see it momentarily through the eyes of Raphael. And it is amazing 
Milton's ability to capture not just sort of picturesque generalized scenery, but a sense of what unfallen nature would be like. Nature at its most vital and attractive now is still a miracle to us, but nature then was something else. Around line 292, Raphael now is come into the blissful field through groves of myrrh and flowering odors, cassia, nard, and balm, a wilderness of sweets. For nature here wantoned as in her prime and played at will her virgin fancies, pouring forth more sweet, wild above rule or art, enormous bliss. The burgeoning vitality and energy of that passage. Milton is not one for carefully clipped and manicured gardens, but he has what really amounts to a pre-romantic sense of nature's energy, vitality, and profusion, enormous bliss. And Raphael himself is pretty impressive moving through that garden and spied by Adam and Eve while he's still coming towards them at a distance. And in another luminous line, Adam calls to Eve, what glorious shape, line 310, comes this way moving, seems another morn risen on mid-noon. Raphael, radiant as if another morning rising at mid-noon. Oh, heavens, there's an angel coming, and it's lunchtime. What are we going to do? And my joke last week, well, at least you don't have to worry about how to dress. Just, there are no clothes, come as you are. But what about eating? And Raphael arrives, and they do their greetings, and Adam rather tentatively inquires, trying to be tactful about it. Um, I'd offer you lunch, but do you guys eat? <laughs> do angels eat? And it turns out that they most certainly do. Every bit as much as we do. And what's going on here? <laughs> because Milton is emphasizing this. This is not just a momentary plot device, but Milton is emphasizing the fact that angels eat and therefore digest material food. Raphael responds around line 405, to man in part spiritual may of purest spirits be found no ingrateful food and food alike those pure intelligential substances require as doth your rational and both contain within them every lower faculty of sense 
whereby they hear, see, smell, touch, taste, tasting, concoct, digest, assimilate, and corporeal to incorporeal turn. If we slow that down and simplify it a little, what Raphael is saying is every physical, bodily capacity that you have with your human bodies, our intelligential substances, our angelic substances also have. We have all the senses, and that includes taste, and we eat, and we digest, and in a crucial line, corporeal to incorporeal turn, which, yes, refers to metabolism, where what is metabolism? Taking in physical substance and breaking it down and turning it into incorporeal energy to fuel the body. We do all that too. And he proves it to them. And eats with enthusiasm. So down they sat, and to their viands fell, nor seemingly the angel, nor in mist the common gloss of theologians, but with keen dispatch of real hunger and concoctive heat to transubstantiate. And that last word, especially if you grew up Catholic, is a signal word of something that's underlying all of this. But Milton is making a real point, and why, about, okay, angels not only have bodies and senses, but when the angel eats, one, it's real and not in mist, not an illusion or something like that, Milton is saying, but with real hunger. Why? Why make angels have all of the senses? Aren't angels supposed to be purely spiritual, which in common preconception would mean bodiless, intangible, purely spiritual, the, the word purely, which we have a reflex to add on there, implies that we, that something purely spiritual is beyond the physical, beyond the bodily. And that's the clue. Milton is working against that kind of preconception, which means he is working against a 1600 in his time year tradition of distrust, ambivalence about the body and the senses and the physical world that pervades not just Christianity, but back into the classical tradition. The body, the physical, and by extension, physical nature have always been deeply distrusted. The attitude has always been extremely ambivalent. 
Milton is working, in other words, against the tendency to dualism in Western civilization. And he's well aware that he's doing that. And the question is, why? Why this dualistic tendency that is everywhere? As I say, not by any means just Christian, but going back at least, for example, to Plato, where the mental act of the philosopher is to rise above this world, which is a world of illusion, but it's also the physical world. And the ideal is to rise by a series of stages to a purely disembodied world a pure intelligence, the world of the ideas or forms. Down here is a trap. And why that split? Christianity inherited that dualism or simply generated its own version and therefore became an intensely ascetic religion for centuries full of practices that were involving the taming and repression and discipline of the body and the senses and of bodily impulses. And again, why? This is a question with deep implications, if only because we're not beyond it by any means. Why is the body a problem? And not rocket science in a sense, if you just think about it with a little common sense. Some answers come rather readily. Two main reasons for the sake of simplification and clarity. First, the body is the origin of certain types of impulses, feelings, desires that are difficult to control and therefore a problem, at least to many people, and certainly a problem to society which needs to control the impulses of its citizens. And Impulses that are out of control are frightening. They seem to come from outside the will, willing, rational self. They seem to be irrational. And they seem, in the eyes of some people, to be destructive. The second reason that the body is a site of ambivalence in the entire history of Western civilization is one that is perhaps most easy for us to understand these days. The body is so frail and vulnerable. After two and a half years of COVID, we hardly need to go into detail explaining that. So much suffering in terms of various illnesses and debilities, even among young people. When you teach, you get a window into how many 
people who are only 20 years old are already suffering from serious illnesses and problems, living sometimes with various forms of pain, living sometimes with various threats that hang over them, danger to their health or even their life. And of course, COVID has focused us on this almost obsessively. The body is vulnerable, and even without disease, the body ages, slowly gets debilitated and dies. The ideal is to be delivered from that. And that is the promise or the hope of at least one type of religious feeling. And that, as I say, runs through early Christianity, but also early elements of the pagan or classical tradition. The ideal of repudiating the world of matter including the physical nature of the body, and rising out of it, at least eventually beyond death, into a purely spiritual, which means a purely intangible, disembodied state of pure consciousness. And that is salvation in some traditions, in some versions of what was called Neoplatonism, in most versions, of the alternative to Christianity in the first two centuries of the common time called Gnosticism. And a powerful anti-physical tradition within Christianity itself, which became an ascetic, pleasure-denying religion in many ways. Ascetic practices designed to make people uncomfortable, to deny pleasure. And we're still aware in a vestigial way of some of those. And again, especially if you are like me, older and grew up in an older Catholic tradition, you remember all of the rituals of fasting at certain points as before communion, of giving up things for Lent. And there used to be a lot more practices that sound just so bizarre to us these days, like wearing hair shirts under your clothes to deliberately punish yourself physically and be uncomfortable. Why? To detach yourself from being too fond of the comforts and pleasures of the body. It's a temptation, it's a snare and a delusion. And so the pleasure-denying impulse. However, Christianity was kind of caught. It could not, in the way that, for, for example, Gnosticism did, entirely repudiate the body and the material world as evil, as fallen, because within the New Testament itself, there was a body-affirming point of view. We are not in the Christian view, despite some of the traditions of popular Christianity down through the centuries, 
The ideal of being redeemed in heaven is not to be a disembodied soul or pure consciousness. That's actually a pagan way of thinking. What Christianity affirms is that there will be eternity in a spiritual body. Spiritual, but a body. And this is explicit in a famous passage in Paul, who says that now we have a natural body, translated in traditional translations like the King James as the natural man, but in eternity we will still have a body, but it will be a spiritual body. Well, what does that mean? Because it's almost, in popular parlance, a kind of oxymoron, a contradiction in terms spiritual and yet a body, a body and yet spiritual. The struggle with this point of view, which sounds so paradoxical, is actually within the New Testament itself, not only in Paul, but in passages such as the story of doubting Thomas in the Gospel, where Thomas had to be reassured when Jesus came back resurrected that Jesus actually had a physical body. He had to feel the wounds, and Jesus ate some fish to reassure him and the other doubting Thomases of the world that no, it's a real body. I am not just a disembodied spook, which some heretical forms of Christianity were affirming at that time. There was a real controversy going on. Nevertheless, there are other indications that the body that Jesus had post-resurrection was indeed a spiritual body. It was physical, it ate, and yet did not have some of the limitations of the natural body. Jesus could suddenly walk through walls and appear in the locked room, for example. So there was a wrestling with this point of view about what a spiritual body would actually be. And that's what Milton is importing into lunch conversation in the Garden of Eden in Book 5, because the angel here has a spiritual body. And we eventually someday in eternity will have spiritual bodies as well. What is the point of this? The point is to get beyond the repudiation of the body and the senses. And we've seen this as important in another context in Milton because we have also seen Milton's affirmation of sexuality, which is a good thing, not just a necessary evil for reproduction, not just a product of the fall, but a great good thing and involves the body and involves the senses, just as eating does as well. Milton takes that attempt to heal a kind of dualistic split to a more radical degree 
that almost anybody I can think of, at least of any note, before the Romantic tr tradition itself, which in many ways descends from Milton, as I say, because what Milton goes on to say here and in a few other points in the text of Paradise Lost is what this means is that things aren't fixed. There is a process. Matter and spirit, matter is not repudiated in order for us to go over to the spiritual. Matter is transformed into spirit, just the way that food is transformed into something intangible through digestion. The whole universe is a process of the spiritualization of matter. That is a primary theme in Milton, and it is everywhere. And people who think that Paradise Lost is just a sort of very long-winded paraphrase of the way that we were taught about the fall of Adam and Eve when we were growing up really don't see how far more profound Milton's searching is here. This matters. This is not just a business for theologians to decide some intellectual is issue. This matters in terms of what makes life worth living. Do we really want to be disembodied? I have made this point elsewhere in the productions of Time in various newsletters. The desire, for example, on the part of some of the computer cyber AI people the yearning to find a way to upload consciousness, to escape from the body into a purely virtual form. What are you leaving behind? The senses, but also the emotions are rooted in the body and the senses, inextricably rooted. Emotions are physical, Physical feelings generate emotion. Mind and body, we have the word psychosomatic for a reason. We are more aware these days that you cannot separate the two even though our minds insist on kind of trying to do it. But they are not separate, nor would we really want that despite our fear of pain and old age and death. And do we want to give up the pleasures of sexuality, the pleasures of eating? And Milton is saying, hell no. That was not God's intention, that gradually we'd be beyond all that and we'd be some sort of disembodied consciousness. That is not the enormous bliss of paradise or of heaven. And. Raphael goes on to say one more thing. This is the process of the entire universe. He gives an amazing speech that begins around line 468 of Book 5, in which it's a vision of the entire universe as a universal process of the spiritualizing of matter. He says, O Adam, one Almighty is from whom all things proceed, and up to him return, if not depraved 
from good. We proceed from God. We return to God through a process of this spiritualization of matter. Each level of the universe doing this, beginning even with the chemical elements where earlier Raphael had said of the elements, the grosser feeds the purer. Earth the sea, earth and the sea feed air, the air, those fires ethereal. Even the elements are working from the material towards the spiritualization of the material because after all, air and fire are not disembodied. They are really the primary symbols in this world of something that could be in a way intangible and yet in a way still physical. And the whole universe does this to return to line 477, till body up to spirit work. And it goes on with this extraordinary and very central metaphor of a plant that begins from a root and grows skyward. So from the root springs lighter the green stalk, and from thence the leaves more airy, Light last the bright consummate flower, spirits odorous breathes, flowers and their fruit man's nourishment by gradual scale sublimed, to vital spirits aspire, to animal, to intellectual, give both life and sense. The plant begins purely physical as a root in the ground, grows upward as a stalk, then to leaves, then to flowers, then to fruit, and continues, man eats the fruit, which then is sublimed through the three forms of spirits in the human body in Renaissance medicine, vital, animal, and intellectual, and finally at that highest point, turn into fancy and understanding. Spiritualization of matter and this may continue. So far as I know, this is Milton making his own bold ex extrapolation here. R Raphael ends by saying to Adam that time may come when men with angels may participate and your bodies may at last turn all to spirit, meaning to spiritualized matter like mine. And therefore, you may at choice here or in heavenly paradises dwell. In other words, this fixed hierarchy of being, there's God, then there's the angels, then there's human beings, then there's the animals, a hierarchy insisted upon by authoritarian Christianity. In Milton's revolutionary view, God's original plan was no, eventually, through the spiritualization of matter, everything may go upward. If Adam and Eve had not fallen, they might not have been limited forever to the Garden of Eden, but have gone at will, just as the angels do, between paradise and heaven and back again. Extraordinary vision. And it also means 
a point to which we will return next time, that the rebellion of Satan and the rebel angels, because they hated their supposedly fixed and inferior position, was utterly unnecessary. If they had obeyed, if they had not been proud and possessed by a will to power, they too would have been more and more equal to and approaching the moment when God, in the phrase out of the New Testament that Milton is very fond of, when God will be all in all. The universe emanates from God and it returns increasingly towards God. A breathtaking vision. And so breathtaking, I might just add in closing for the day that probably some conservative theologians would find it more than a bit too much. But that's Milton for you. At any rate, that rebellion of the rebel angels is what will concern us in the second half of Book 5, to which we will return next time. Mm -hmm.